Good morning. It is um, <clears throat> a privilege beyond words to stand here before you um, to preach from this pulpit that has been so entrusted to Pastor Jones. Um, he um, stated that <clears throat> we'd met through my parents, and we did. He was preaching. Uh, most of you know, once a year in, in June, he would go to a conference, Chicagoland area, and my, and my dad's church would have this conference. And uh, the first year that he came, my wife and I wasn't there weren't there. The second year he was there, we, we, we met, uh, and uh, Pastor Jones preached, and as he was preaching, uh, both of his feet came off the ground. <laughs> and I say there's something special about a preacher when, while he's preaching, he just levitates. <laughs> and so uh, I, I reached out to my dad, and I said, hey, um, can you give me Pastor Jones' phone number so I can get a hold of him? I just want to know what he reads. And my dad, knowing Pastor Jones, said, well, I won't give you his phone number, but I'll give you his email address. So he gave me his email address, and I, and I reached out to Pastor Jones via email, and, the, and, and simply the email was, hey, can you give me a list of books that you're reading so that I can read them too as I prepare uh, for my sermons? The next day, Pastor Jones responded with an email that said that had 11 books listed from 1 through 11. And the last thing he said was, pick one and I'll go through it with you. And that was huge for me. So that very week, we started our Thursdays and we've been on the phone together going on three, three, four years every week. And so he's been just a... A huge blessing to the point where um, he is uh, more than a friend. He's a spiritual father to me in the faith. And so I want to say that this church is supremely blessed to have him as the under-shepherd here. Um, so, but last year, with that being said, he, he called and asked me to come preach for the anniversary. And he said the church has two services. And so he said, I'll, I'll preach the first service. And you preach the second service. Um, for anyone who's a preacher... <laughs> That's why brother laughs. See, any, anyone who's a preacher, you would know that uh, you, you don't want to preach behind Pastor Jones. <laughs> I said, "Man, can I go first? And he said, "No." no. So I had to, I had to preach behind him last year. So this year, when when, when we discussed me coming, he said, "I'm going to have you preach both services." And I said, Whew. <laughs> "I don't have to preach behind Pastor Jones this year." And so I'm, I'm feeling good. I'm excited. I'm, I got more confidence than I had last year. And then, you know, about two weeks ago, I had this dream. And I had this dream that after the service was, the morning service was over, after I got done preaching, Pastor Jones put me in the office. He said, hey, brother, I got the afternoon. Don't worry about it. Thank, thank you, but I, I'll, I'll take it from here. Mess, mess, mess my head up. All the confidence went out the window. You know, so, so take heed while you stand, right? Lest, lest you fall. But it, it's, it's a privilege to be here preaching on this 56-year anniversary. That's a, um, a huge testament to the faithfulness of God to this ministry in particular, right? 56 years um, still proclaiming the gospel, 56 years of still loving each other, 56 years of still taking the gospel to the community. 56 years of not being caught up in gimmicks. 
but, but trusting and having faith and relying on the, the same message that's given to us in the scriptures. That's a testament of God's faithfulness to this local body. With that being said, let us turn to our text this morning. It is found in Ephesians chapter 5. As Brother Ronnie so eloquently read for us this morning, verses 22 to 33, I'll read it quickly just so that it is on our minds as we seek to hear a word from the Lord this morning. Beginning at verse 22 in chapter 5, Paul writes, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. He is the savior of the body. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so wives are to submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her, to make her holy, cleansing her with the washing of water by the word. He did this to present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle, or anything like that, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands are to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his Wife loves himself, for no one ever hates his own flesh, but provides and cares for it, just as Christ does the church, since we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This mystery is profound, but I am talking about Christ and the church. To sum it up, each of you is to love his wife as himself. And the wife is to respect her husband. May God richly bless the reading and the hearing of his word. Shall we pray? Father God, Lord, we are grateful for the great love that you have shown us in Christ Jesus. And even at times, Father God, when we dismiss it, at times when we are ungrateful, your love still holds sway. And so we pray that as we would hear a word from you this morning, that you would once again, Father God, show us, that you would once again remind us, that you would once again encourage and, and comfort us, Father God, with the great love that you have shown us in Christ. May Christ be exalted through the preaching of your word this morning. And may your people, Father God, be edified. And may all things culminate into a sweet aroma to your nostrils. We ask these things in Christ Jesus. Amen. If you were to partake in a survey, and the only question that was asked in the survey was, how would you define the church? What would your answer be? You only get one answer. And while I'm sure many of us good Christians would say stuff like a collection of God's people who, uh, who, who both locally and abroad, some would say Christians who worship together in one place Sunday morning, and some of us who are more theological would probably say something like a collection of people who have put their faith in Christ and Christ alone. And at some level, all of these statements concerning the church are accurate. Yes, the church is a collection of God's people both locally and abroad, she is a collection of God's people who have put their faith in Christ and Christ alone. And yet while all of these statements are true and at, at some level it would be a great response to give, I would submit to you today that the church, while being all of these things, is most sufficiently, supremely, and accurately defined by love. 
The love of God, that is his affection for and commitment to his elect and their eternal salvation. As we learned Wednesday night in Pastor Jones' Bible study class. We are defined by it, the love, and not only are we defined by it, but God has caused us to be recipients of this love as well. We proclaim it, and we do our best at times to demonstrate it. It is this understanding of the church and how it is defined that led me to our text today. In in our text this morning and later this afternoon, we will look at what the apostle calls a profound mystery. This profound mystery that according to the apostle is nothing more than Christ and his church. Oftentimes, probably even this morning when we see this text before us or hear it read, most of us buckle our seatbelts and prepare to brace ourselves for a 30 to 45 minute sermon of the duties of husbands and wives. In fact, we have dealt with this text this way for so long, many of us are probably thinking, how does this text have anything to do with a church anniversary? And I suggest that the way in which this text has been dealt with over the years has caused many people to have a disdain for this passage. And rightfully so, because when we fail to see the scriptures through the lens of the person and work of Christ, we cannot only lose sight of the meaning of text, but we can also find ourselves handicapped in our understanding of all that God has done for us in Christ. I have, as many of you probably have sat and listened to, Ministers use this text to go upside the heads of husbands and wives to the point where, there, where, where this text in many respects is often overlooked or even at times misquoted by husbands trying to get their wives to submit and wives trying to get their husbands to love them. Well, you know the Bible says you ought to submit to me. That's true, but it also says you ought to love me. Right? So this, this, this text has been has been vilely back and forth between husbands and wives for years. Simply telling a husband to love his wife and leaving it there will never get him to love his wife. Simply telling a wife she ought to submit to her husband and leaving it there will never get her to submit to her husband. We look at this text as only a text to, to convince husbands to be loving and wives to submit to their husbands. When we leave this text right there, we missed a point. While I do believe that there is some good application for the marriage relationship, right? it is honoring for men to love their wives and wives to submit to their husbands. If we leave this text simply only dealing with the marriage relationship between a man and his wife, we miss the entire point of what the apostle is making. Many times I have heard this text preached and I've heard several different ministers pluck out various verses and make make that verse the point of this text. Yet for the sake of our time this morning and keeping in theme with the church anniversary, I would like to submit to you that the the impetus of these verses here in chapter 5 is verse 32. After the apostle has made the statement that husbands love their wives and after he has made the statement that wives submit to their husbands, after he has placed both of these statements in the context of how Christ and his bride are to interact, he says in verse 32, this is a mystery, profound, but I am talking about Christ and his church. And it is this one statement that elevates this text above just simply a guide to have a good marriage. It is this statement in verse 32 that elevates this text above what it means to be a good husband. 
It elevates this text above what it means to be a good wife. This one statement makes it clear that there is something far more greater than just having a good marriage that Paul is getting at in this text. In one statement, the apostle tells us to stop being self-centered in how we read our Bibles. He takes the focus off of our individual marriages and he places the focus directly back on Christ and what he has done for his bride. And the profound mystery that can be plucked out of, uh, of Paul using the marriage relationship as a, as a picture of the relationship between Christ and his bride, the mystery that can be seen in this text is that making the, uh, the church the very bride of his only son, God has defined her by love. As we look at this this morning, I will keep in step with the theme. I will first look at the defining of the church by love, and then we will... Look at the love we have received. Later today, this afternoon, we will return to this text and we will look at how that love is proclaimed and demonstrated. But again, I say the mystery that is so profound is that the church has been defined by love and this, this mystery is fleshed out by the fact that God has made us the bride of his one and only son. This is how God has decided to define us. Whether you say that a church is a collection of believers, whether you say a collection of people who have put their faith in Christ, no matter how you say it, no matter how you label the church, God says that the church is my son's bride. What better way to show his love for us than by not only giving it to us, but using that same love to define who we are. So as you look at our first point this morning, that is, the church is defined by love. Allow me to make a few observations about this. The first thing we notice is that Paul gives instructions to the husband and wife. And after doing so, he loosely quotes the words of Adam uh, when, when he first saw Eve and says, For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. Now notice, uh, if you will, the fact that Paul used this quote while outlining the mystery of Christ and his church, he is saying that this mystery predates what he's writing here in Ephesians. He is taking the mystery back before the first marriage even happened, and he is placing the mystery that will be fleshed out in time regarding Christ and his church, and he is taking that mystery and he is placing it directly in the mind of God. And not just in the mind of God, but in the creating mind of God. So essentially, Paul is saying that God in creating man and woman in his image and then joining them together was a real life end time picture of what he was going to do between his son and the church. What this does is it helps us understand a couple things about marriage. Here's the first thing. Marriage is not simply something God has given to humanity in order to make us happy. But rather, marriage is something God has given to humanity as being a part of how we, both men and women, would carry out being an image of the Almighty God. God has built into what it means to be a husband and what it means to be a wife a reflection of his image. This is why Paul, every statement he makes, he, he goes right back to wives. Love your husbands as unto the Lord. Husbands, love your wives as Christ does for his church. He is saying that over and over again so that we would not lose sight of the fact that this is how we carry out being in the image of God. Paul is making it clear that there's more to it. 
If husbands are to love their wives like Christ loves his church, then it's deeper than just a woman and her need to be loved. It goes deeper and we begin to see that in love, God created us to reflect his image. And this reflection of his image is not simply us just existing and walking around, but there are certain functions that he has built into humanity that by them we we reflect his image to the world. Secondly, not only has God given to us marriage to us in order that we might reflect the image, but he also has given marriage to us so that we might understand at a deep level what our relationship is with his son. It is no small matter, loved ones, that God God calls us the bride of Christ. This designation brings to the surface just what God has in mind when he chose us as his people. There is a love that God has for his people that is not shared by anything else that has been created. Those of us who are saved by faith have not only been saved by the sacrifice of Christ, but by his sacrifice, we have been married to him into the family of God in such a way that we are the only ones created to share this love with God. Sure, everything else that God created, he was satisfied and said it was good, but but us, he calls us a bride. Everything else that God created, was he, he, he was satisfied, in, but, but yet the people of God, he, he chose them to be the bride of his son. God has, in his love, determined and selected us and picked us for, for the purpose of being married to his son. And what this does is it deepens the statement that God made concerning man in Genesis. When he said, it is not good for man to be alone. And it makes it clear that this statement was not simply about Adam being lonely, but rather it was a statement about God wanting his image to be completely and sufficiently represented by what he created. Therefore, if indeed, and Paul says it is, marriage is a picture of Christ and his church, then Adam being alone was not a complete reflection of God's image, nor was he a complete reflection of Christ and his church. Therefore, creating the woman then was God's way of saying amen to the statement, let us make man in our image. Creating the woman was God saying amen to his own plan of redemption. Creating the woman was a crowning act for by creating both man and then the woman and joining them in marriage, God was giving us a picture of what it would have looked like for his son to redeem his bride. Isn't it interesting that Adam, when he saw Eve, he immediately spoke of being married to her. As soon as he saw Eve, he, God put him to sleep and then he created Eve and he woke Adam up. And before Adam could get done wiping the sleep out of his eye, he saw Eve and said, Whoa, for this reason a man shall leave his mother and father and cleave unto his wife. It was immediate. So much so that Adam started talking about people that didn't even exist. Who was the mother and father? I don't know who those people are, Adam said, but whoever they are, you're going to leave them for this one here. There were no, there was no one else. He saw Eve and she was his wife. There was no one else. There were no trial and error relationships. There were no other options for Adam, nor did he want any other options. He saw his bride and he desired her. This very fact is fleshed out most supremely in Christ. And the fact that Christ did not die for bride options. Christ 
did not die and, 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 and be buried and raised again in order to be able to select from a plethora of brides. No, but Christ left his father in heaven and he came uh, and by his life of righteousness and by his death and resurrection claimed us as his one and only option. He has set his love on no other bride, for there is no other bride that exists. And you see the beauty of this when you look at Ezekiel chapter 16, verses 1 through 14. It's what Ezekiel says. The word of the Lord came to me again. Son of man, confront Jerusalem with her detestable practices. Say, you are to say to her, this is what the Lord God says to Jerusalem. Your origin and your birth were in the land of the Canaanites. Your father was an Amorite and your mother was a Hittite. As for your birth, your umbilical cord wasn't cut on the day you were born and you weren't washed clean with water. You were not rubbed with salt or wrapped in cloth. No one cared enough about you to do even one of these things out of compassion for you. But you were thrown into the open field because you were despised on the day you were born. I passed by, saw you thrashing around in your blood, and I said to you as you lay in your blood, live. Yes, I said to you as you lay in your blood, live. I made you thrive like plants in the field. You grew up and matured and became very beautiful. Your breasts were formed and your hair grew, but you were stark naked. Then I passed by you and saw you, and you were indeed the age of love. So I spread the edge of my garment over you covered your nakedness, pledged myself to you, entered into a covenant with you. This is the declaration of the Lord God, and you became mine. I washed you with water, rinsed off your blood, and anointed you with oil. I clothed you in embroidered clothing and provided you with fine leather sandals. I, I also wrapped you in fine linen and covered you around your neck. I put a ring in your nose, earrings in your ears, and a beautiful crown on your head. So you were adorned with gold and silver. Your clothing was made of fine linen silk and embroidered cloth. You ate fine flour, honey, and oil. You became extremely beautiful and attained royalty. Your fame spread among the nations because of your beauty, for it was perfect through my splendor, which I bestowed on you. This is the declaration of the Lord. I remember a friend telling me, talking about his older brother, he said, man, my older brother loves his wife so much, he does not even see other women. Well, I knew his older brother. And whether that's true or not, this is what Christ has done for us. His love for us as his bride so much that not only does he not see other brides, there are no other brides that exist. So much that not only does he not see other brides, but according to Ezekiel, he saw his bride for who she was and loved her anyway. Cast out and thrashing around in her own blood and in spite of all, in spite of all that he loved us anyway. So when Paul runs down his resume for us in this text in Ephesians, Paul says, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her to make her holy, cleansing her with the washing of water by the word, he did this to present the church to himself in splendor. Without spot or wrinkle or anything like that but holy and blameless, there was only one bride in mind, and that bride is us. 
Those of us who have been called by his name and those who have put our faith in Christ, we are defined by love. The love that moved Christ to give of himself. The love that moved him to make us holy, cleansing us with washing of water in the word in order that he might present us his bride to himself without spot or wrinkle but holy and blameless. It is the same love that moved him to take a bride born of heathen birth, cast out and wallowing in her own sin and shame. It is this love that moved him to give himself for that bride. It moved him to cover our nakedness with his righteousness. It is this love, the love of God, that we have been defined as the bride of the one and only Son of God. I'm reminded of the text in Genesis 24 when Abraham was getting old and he wanted to secure a wife for his son. And the text says Abraham was, was now old, going on in years. The Lord had blessed him and everything. Abraham said to his servant, the elder of his household who managed all he owned. Place your hand under my thigh. And I will, swear, I will have you swear by the Lord of God of heaven and earth that you will not take a wife from my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I live. But will go to my land and my family and take a wife from my son Isaac. This text is beautiful in light of our context this morning for just as Abraham desired a particular wife for his son, God also desired a particular wife for his son. Just as Abraham sent the one who managed his own household for him, God sent the one who manages his household for him. Just as Abraham wanted this wife to be kin, the father wrapped his son in flesh and in doing so partook of the same nature and, and giving himself of us and washing us with the water and the word and making us holy without spot or blemish. We are now suitable to stand before God as the one and only bride of Christ. If the servant would, of Abraham would have come back with anyone that did not meet the criteria, the answer would have been no. And later on in this text, if you keep reading, the servant, the servant even says, well, well, Abraham, what if I find her and she's unwilling to come? Right? And here's the beauty, brothers and sisters. We did not meet the criteria. And we were unwilling to come. But God and his love sent his son to wash us and to cleanse us and to make us holy. And now as a result of what Christ has done, we can stand before our father next to our groom and do not worry if we have measured up. God, before the world began, set his love on us. And in doing so, he determined that we would be the bride of his son. And it is this love, this predetermining love, this eternal love, this everlasting love, this unstoppable, reckless love of God, the, the affection and commitment of God for his elect and their eternal salvation love that has defined us as more than just a collection of people who are here every Sunday. But we are indeed the very handpicked, prearranged bride of Christ Amen. not only are we defined by love this love but God goes further and he gives us this love in order that we might in Christ receive it and it's this love of God that has defined us it is the same love that we have received by God through Christ and here's the verse, first observation about that the love we have received from God in Christ is a sacrificial love this statement is seen most assuredly when Paul gives to us all that Christ has done for the church. 
He says Christ is our Savior, and, and being our Savior, he has given himself for the church. This statement is marvelous, for what it tells us is that the love that we have received from God not only comes to us in Christ, but it is Christ who is not only the fountain by which that love flows, but he is also the one who was broken in order for the fountain to be open. Meaning that this love we have received from God in Christ came at the expense of himself. Now, what does this help us to understand? Several things. The love that was necessary for us to be redeemed and joined into union with Christ in marriage was a love that, that could only be tapped into only if Christ himself was sacrificed. The sacrifice of no one else and nothing else would have moved God to be pleased with humanity in such a way where he would have lavished on us this love. For this reason, the Hebrew writer makes it clear when he says, since the law has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the reality itself of those things, it can never perfect the worshipers by the same sacrifices they continually offer year after year. Otherwise, wouldn't they have stopped being offered since the worshipers purified once and for all would no longer have any consciousness of sin? But in the sacrifices, there was a reminder of sins year after year. For it is impossible for the, the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, as he was coming into the world, he said, You do not desire sacrifice and offering, but you prepared a body for me. You do not delight in whole burnt offerings and sin offerings. Then I said, See, it is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, O God. In order for there to be a union with Christ in, in marriage, there needed to be a sacrifice made that would not be a reminder of sin by its uselessness, but rather be a reminder of sins forgiven by its effectiveness. And the only person qualified to perform such a sacrifice was Christ himself. The sacrifice of Christ was unlike the blood of bulls and goats. It is not one that is a reminder of sin, but rather it is a sacrifice that is a reminder of sins forgiven. The sacrifice of Christ has not only allowed for us to experience the love of God, but it has by its effectiveness accomplished the exact opposite of what the bulls and goats. Whereas the blood of bulls and goats served only to remind the people that they were still in their sin, the blood of Christ has saved us. Amen. Because of it, we are reminded not of our sin, but of our forgiveness of our sin. And what a marvelous thing this is. So many times in marriage, we spend time reminding each other of the past mistakes. Well, you did this and you did that. And before you know it, you both have a long list of what the other person did. And it's always in the past. This is not how Christ loves his bride. Amen. By his sacrifice that he made, he's going to remind us of all of our past mistakes. But rather, he reminds us that we have been forgiven and that we are truly loved. Because of what he has done. The love we have received from God was sacrificial. A sacrificial love that works at reminding us that we truly are loved. And at times when we are acting like an unfaithful wife. At times when we are posturing as if though we have no marriage duties to our Lord. At times when we forget whose we are. God over and over again in the love that he has shown us in Christ reminds us that we are loved over and over again. He reminds us that the mistakes we have made while being his bride are never enough to cause a divorce between us and our groom. 
Love when Paul says in Romans, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. Every mistake, every foolish act or thought, Christ says to us, honey, I've already taken care of that. Every time. So it's not like, you know, you know when, when we walk into the room, he gives us a silent treatment. He doesn't do that. When we walk in, he walks out. No, when we walk in and all of our mess and all of our shame, having messed up again, he says to us, honey, I've already taken care of that. Over and over again, he reminds us that though we are a raggedy wife at times, the love we have received works hard at reminding us not of our faults, but of the faultlessness of our groom. Amen. And it's because of his faultlessness we can be assured that we are secure in him. Do you understand, church, that Christ has sacrificed for you? In all of our mess, in all of our foolishness, of all of our mistakes, and all the ways that we betray him at times, while, while we were laying in our blood and cast out, you, church, were sacrificed for. The only sacrifice that pleased God on your behalf is not only sufficient for your salvation, but it's also sufficient in reminding you, not of your mistakes, but how you're loved. And not only is it a sacrificial love, but Paul makes a very interesting point about this love that, that Christ has shown to his bride. He says in the last part of 28 and 29, but he who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hates his own flesh, but, provi but provides and cares for it just as Christ does for the church. Now this statement is remarkable for several reasons. It makes it clear that the love we have received from God is the exact same love that is experienced in the Godhead. He who loves himself loves his wife, meaning the same love that Christ loves himself, meaning his father and the spirit is the same love that he has showed on us in Christ. Christ has loved us with the same love he shares inside of the Godhead. And this love is so powerful. The very moment it touches the heart of humanity, things change. And can you just drink that in for a moment? Can you, can you pause there and, and, and let your mind and heart just, just, just simmer on the fact that there is no different love that God has for his people that he does not have for himself. That what we get in Christ is the same love that the Father has with the Son and the Son has with the Spirit and the Spirit has with them. There is no love A and love B. But rather... He is love. And the same love that is involved in the Trinitarian interactions is the same love that has been richly poured on us in Christ. And rightly so, because the only love that can ever have enough power to change dastardly human beings has to be a love that, that flows directly out of the Godhead. And yet what is interesting as, as well is that Paul goes on to say, and no one hates his own flesh, but cares for it, just as Christ cared for the church. So it may have looked like Christ did not care about his flesh when he allowed him to beat him to a pope. It may have appeared that Christ did not care about his own flesh when the crown of thorns was placed on his head. It may have appeared that, that to the onlookers that Christ had no regard for his own flesh when they drove the nails into his feet and hands. That's what the thief said. Save yourself and us. 
It may have looked like he had no regard for his own flesh. It may have been surmised that Christ did not care about his own flesh when they pierced his side. Oh, but for those of us who have been enlightened by the gospel, it was not that Christ did not care about his flesh, but rather it was Christ caring and nurturing his bride. Every stripe, every wound, every blow, Christ was cleansing and caring for his bride. Every lash, every whip, every word of mockery, Christ was cleansing and purifying his bride. Every bang of the hammer onto the nail, every shortness of breath, every drop of blood spilled, Christ was caring and nurturing his bride. And it was this bloody display of affection for his bride that is an overflow of love that exists between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Brothers and sisters, we have been given this text so not so we can take up the agenda of saving marriages. We have not been given this text so we can make marital laws that husbands and wives now have to submit to. Rather, we have been given this text so that we might look upon the sacrifice of Christ and see that God has defined us by love, making us the bride of his son. And it is the same love that moved Christ to sacrifice himself for his bride so that by doing so, she may be cleansed and made holy, not having her mistakes held against her, but being reminded that this great love, that she truly is loved and forgiven. How would you define the church after all of these years being in Miami? Having seen the ups and the downs of doing ministry, having seen some people come and some people go. The only way, brothers and sisters of Glendale Missionary Baptist, the only way you will be able to continue to honor God as you have in these 56 years is to know that you are not four walls and a sanctuary. It is to know that you are not the sum total of your ministries. It's to know that you are not any of these things, but you are the bride of Christ, handpicked and selected by God. And you have been given the love that flows from heaven and you have been sacrificed for in such a way that now all that is left is not a reminder of your sin, but a reminder that you have been forgiven. You are indeed the bride of Christ. We are the bride of Christ, Amen. defined by God's love. We have been made recipients of that same love. Amen? Amen? Let us pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We pray, Father God, that Christ was exalted, that your people were edified. In his name we pray. Amen.